0: Bring you the business of recovery because those struggling with addiction need you to be here tomorrow as well as today.
1: Hello everyone and thank you for joining me here on the Recovery Executive Podcast. My name is Nick Jaworski, owner of Circle Social Inc. Today we are talking about value-based care with Jacob Levinson. He is the CEO and founder of Map Health Management. Map Health Management does peer recovery support services and outcomes tracking, and they actually just had Aetna lead a large financing round of $25 million for them. So a lot of exciting things happening with them. Before we jump into value-based care, though, as always, I want to give a shout out to Verify TX, who is our sponsor for this podcast. When seconds can make the difference between admitting a qualified client or losing them to a change of heart, a competitor, or worse, Verify TX gives your team the tools they need to help save a life. They're available 24-7 from your smartphone, the web, Salesforce, whatever your VOB team or call team needs. Start by seeing the 15-minute demo today at VerifyTX.com. And as always, be sure to mention the Recovery Executive Podcast for a special offer. They are amazing partners to our clients and many treatment centers across the country. I recommend you reach out. Okay, so today we're talking with Jacob. We're talking about value-based care. and also some of the efforts that MAP is putting into outcomes tracking and measurement. We get very deep into what value-based care is, what insurance providers are looking for, why this can be advantageous for centers. There's a lot of questions, a lot of misinformation. And then we also get a lot into the data tracking, the outcomes for improving clinical outcomes for patients. Because at the bottom line, that's what all of us want to do. Whether you are a provider, whether you are a health management plan, whether you are insurance payer, you're really looking for better outcomes, right? Because one, we're helping people. People, it's also reducing costs. Like if we help people, then we're going to have less people coming back to us or insurance providers are going to have to pay less out, you know, in the insurance policies. So there are a lot of advantages, both from a business standpoint, as well as a clinical standpoint to making sure that people are getting the care that they need. What I really love about the conversation that we have with Jacob is we get a lot into the social determinants of health, something that I think is largely lacking from the addiction treatment conversation, at least in most providers or conferences and other areas that I'm speaking with. The investment investment community is very aware of it. The larger healthcare community is very aware of it. But the social determinants of health is something that we don't talk about enough within uh, addiction care itself. So get very deep into the weeds on that. And get some insights into how to work with your insurance payers to get some of these value based contracts, what you should be doing to prepare for the future, and what is ultimately going to be the right direction for this field, which is then the right direction for your patients. So with that, let's jump into the conversation. Hey, Jacob, really appreciate you taking the time to come on the show today. Do you want to tell us a little bit about who you are and what your company does?
0: Yeah, sure, Nick. Uh, thanks for having me on. i been looking forward to, to doing this with you. Uh, happy to give a little bit of kind of background and color here. Uh, my name is Jacob Levinson. I'm the CEO and founder of MAP Health Management. We, uh, we provide peer recovery support services to people In recovery from substance use disorders Um, we also provide data insights associated with uh, the recovery experience uh, how people get well how they don't get well and and kind of look at those data insights on a opportunity kind of basis to to see how we can better bend the needle and bend the curve towards people being recovered and you know ultimately uh, identify what what quality outcomes look like in this space
1: so today we're going to be talking a lot about value-based care, because I think it's something people are interested in. But I want to get a little bit deeper into your company, because we have clients that use you guys, and I recommend you on a regular basis, because I like the services you're providing. But give us a little bit more in the weeds. you know. So you've got peer recovery support specialists, you're doing outcomes tracking. You know, How does that stuff play out for your partner clients?
0: Sure. So Matt, uh, we're headquartered in Austin, Texas, which is where I'm sitting today. We've we've actually been at this quite a while, uh, just relative to kind of the space, if you will. Uh, founded in two thousand and eleven, and we've always had a pretty simple mission. You know, again, leveraging peer recovery support specialists. Which to map a peer recovery support specialist is someone who is in three years uh, verifiable continuous recovery from a substance use disorder. Uh, also, it fits some some other criteria just around having worked in the addiction treatment space to some extent uh, and just kind of ha- having some some hands-on experience and actually providing services to uh, people and, and their families in recovery. Um, our services really look to help people navigate typically the first year, sometimes beyond, but typically the first year of recovery. Uh, and there, there's nothing like the power of being able to say, hey, Nick, I know where you are because I've been there too. And I have successfully traversed, you know, the, the, the valleys and hills that exist in early recovery. And let me help you guide, let me help guide you along the way. I'm not your, your sponsor. I'm not here to replace your sponsor. I'm here to reinforce the value of sponsorship. If you're going on a 12 step track, uh, you know, we're, the, the beauty of what we do, we're able to, to be pretty, pretty neutral and accommodate. Accommodate a lot of recovery pathways, MAT, Smart Recovery, 12 step, so forth and so on. Um, and so, we you know, really, just to kind of get to the essence, we, we take people uh, typically who are leaving higher levels of care uh, and transition them back into sustainable recovery, help them integrate back into their social setting, their work and school environment, make sure that they're managing their, their medical needs and their, you know, any potential psych and behavioral needs. And just taking a really proactive approach to wellness uh, with the intent of mitigating uh, return to active substance use. And uh, it, it works. So hopefully that adds a little insight there.
1: Yeah. What's really beautiful, I think, about what you guys do is so you're extending the process of care, right? You know, so... We all know that the longer you're in treatment or connected to treatment, the more successful your outcomes are going to be. But not only are you extending that care process through the peer recovery support connections, but it's actually paid for, right? So the you've gotten contracts fairly recently with the insurance providers where they are covering, you know, at least in certain states, um, that outreach and that peer recovery support. Is that correct?
0: That, that's true. Uh, that's been more of a marathon than a sprint, taking many, many years, and uh, yeah, a, a lot of work. Uh, one of the hardest things I've ever done professionally, may, maybe the hardest, was to walk in and work with these health care plans and get coverage, and, and particularly on the commercial side, uh, for a service they've never covered. And that, that, that's been a, a really interesting experience Uh, but one that we've we've successfully completed uh, to date. We have about 40 million lives who are eligible to receive MAPS services as a covered benefit uh, on a pretty good trajectory to put a one in front of that four and, you know, hopefully get more access to some folks out there.
1: Yeah, that's fantastic. I mean, because, again, you know, the treatment centers don't have to pay anything for the ones you're partnering with. Uh, Patients don't have to pay anything. I mean, I can basically guarantee that it's improving outcomes, right, which is why the insurance providers are willing to pay for it. You know, also, you get people early in the stage, right? So if you've got peer recovery support specialists working with people, you know, and things start to go south, you know, in someone's recovery, well, you can catch that earlier, you know, so they're not going back into such an acute crisis mode, you know, ideally anyway, right?
0: Exactly. Look, whether – someone is on the disease side or that this is a condition side, whatever, what we can all agree on, this is certainly appears to be chronic, whether a disease or a condition, uh, an acute care-only approach to chronic disease or conditions, a recipe for disaster from a, a longitudinal outcomes perspective. All we're talking about here is managing and more actively managing a chronic situation with chronic management, no different than, than many other Chronic situations, you know, everything from HIV to to maybe MS or uh, diabetes, are managed, and so you know, applying a lot of that same philosophy to to SUD, which you know, for a lot of reasons hasn't happened in the past, is is certainly going to be an outcomes enhancement uh, mechanism. The healthcare plans are on board. Finally, we're we're at. Uh, kind of a new paradigm here where I think consumer, healthcare healthcare consumer, provider, healthcare plan, there's a lot of overlap on the approach to, to managing SUD more effectively. So yeah, you know, I think MAP's gonna kind of been you know hopefully we're in the right place to to kind of maximize a lot of people nodding yes on a chronic management approach to SUD.
1: Love it. All right, and I know everyone wants to get into value-based care here, but I also just saw something come across my LinkedIn feed this morning, and I talked with Jared on it briefly. He sent me some other information, but you guys have a map peer link, and this is some kind of like remote box that people can use to reach out. Can you give me a little bit of information on that?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So we're pretty excited about this. Uh, This is is one of these ideas that necessity is the mother of invention and it just kind of some situations that we've seen have caused us to to kind of go forward with this. So here's what the PeerLink is. The the PeerLink is a HIPAA-compliant booth, very similar to a phone booth, although we like to think ours looks a little bit better, that an individual can sit down, an individual in recovery or who may need to, to seek recovery, we'll put it that way, can sit down, close the door of the booth, and have a, a private conversation live instantly with a peer. So basically, they basically sit down, they push a button. Uh, right now our, our call response time is about 10, 12 seconds. So you're gonna push a button, uh, video screen comes on, and you're gonna have a live peer in front of you. Uh, we're starting to place these, I think we have about 25 of these already committed. These are going out to acute care, addiction treatment facilities, who you know, want, obviously, to refer their folks to uh, post-acute peer recovery support services provided by MAP, uh, also got some, some really interesting cycles going where we're putting these in primary care uh, practice locations, uh, putting them in emergency departments slash ER rooms, and also looking to, to put these in pharmacies. All locations where there's a high presentation of people with SUD, the referral strategy isn't great coming out of those locations, and so we're putting together kind of an interesting peer peer recovery support specialist from our side who's, who's able to refer and, and do a lot of kind of coordination if necessary because, you know, you've got all sorts of acuity levels walking into that booth. And uh, so, yeah, re- real excited. I'll give you a link, so... Uh, if your listeners want to see a photo or kind of see more information of what this is, uh, maybe you can post it on the the site next to the the link podcast or something.
1: Yeah, super fascinating. So yeah, for everyone listening, what we'll do is on the, so if you go to circlesociallink.com, they cover executive podcast and you find this episode, you'll be able to click on that and then they'll have a link of resources under that. Um, So if anyone wants to access any of the resources that Jacob is sharing today, then you can find them there. All right, so let's jump into this value based Care conversation. So this has been going on for a while in healthcare in particular, and, you know, a little bit more recently in addiction treatment and behavioral health, but no one really understands it. So can you first just give us a little bit of a definition about what value-based care is?
0: So it's a great question. And, and I think that in many instances, value-based care specifically as it pertains to behavioral health, and even more specifically as it, as it pertains to addiction treatment, is in the extreme infancy. And so I think you're still at a point where, to, to some degree, you, you get 10 Jacobs in a room and you're going to get 10 definitions of value-based care as it pertains to SUD. Here's what I would say in just kind of my, my experience in the marketplace. I think right now what, what value-based care is is looking like, and if I were to define it, I would, I would call it a construct in which care providers are participating in, in, in this construct Wherein there's a a defined definition of, of value that's typically going to revolve around scores related to social determinants of health. Things like, you know, what are people employed, living situation, access to healthcare, transportation, stress levels, these kinds of things, combined with other metrics that are related to utilization, meaning healthcare resource utilization, ED room, uh, primary care, those kinds of things. And I think what we're looking at is our services, and specifically acute care services like addiction treatment, how are they impacting the individual's scoring across those dimensions or domains I just referenced? The utilization, the social determinants of health, and you know, we, it, what is the value prop for that service? Does it Does it bend the cost curve? Does it bend the social determinants of health curve uh as a result of that quality treatment and then you know we would correlate that to efficacy of services those kinds of things and you know therein you've got value and so it's really important i think to use those kinds of metrics as a standardization or a substrate so that you can as a provider quantify you know financially and and clinically at least from an outcomes perspective clinically the efficacy of the services so that Uh, all the risk takers and those who are are paying for those services are having a a really good understanding of of the value of those services and what the ROI is and, and what the predictability is when they're subsidizing those services.
1: Okay. So there's a lot to unpack there. Um, Let's kind of explore this a little bit more just so listeners are getting a clear understanding. So currently within addiction treatment, you have a fee-for-service model, right? So let's say you have a bundled rate. People come for a 28-day stay and the insurance is reimbursing us, let's say $20,000, right? Um, if that person comes back to treatment two months later because they relapse, it's still the fee-for-service model where I get another $20,000 to treat that person, right? So within a value-based care model, what the payer is saying is they saying, hey, we're going to give you $30,000 rather than 20000 but during the contracted period, so let's say a year, if that person relapses, we're not going to pay you again, right? So you've been provided your rate, and now it's up to you from a value-based care perspective to make sure that that person is taken care of. So what this does is it it kind of shifts the risk around, right? It's more a shared risk, so the provider as well as the payer is taking some risk. And if the provider does a really good job, they're gonna make a little bit more. And if they're doing a poor job, meaning that person's relapsing and coming back for multiple rounds of treatment, then they're actually gonna make less. Um, So sharing that risk across the board uh, a lot of challenges there though right as you're talking about so a lot of it becomes outcomes metrics and tracking and how do you define those um so I, let's stick with the addiction treatment first i think before we expand out into other areas of, of health care but so for example there we've got the situation where let's say that you know three months from now someone goes on a bender for a weekend but then is sober for the following week you know how is that negotiated between the provider and the payer in terms of if they require an additional stint back in the rehab or not? It
0: well, look a good uh, kind of summary of, of what I think the next iteration is. Here's what I think the space really is. I think the space is simply at a measurement phase, okay? Uh, yes, there are some value-based care arrangements that are out there and, and they're pretty light, okay, but it, it isn't, uh, you know, I think the desire right now is, is very, very strong. And I think what we're really seeing is look, uh, here's you know, here, this is an iterative process. The, the first way to deliver value provider is to measure the, the outcomes of the services that you're providing. But let's just start there, right? Let's just start with an organic measurement and, and get some baselines. Let's see. Let's see what's what's happening, and it's because I I do the same thing. We've gone at risk and continue to go at risk for certain elements around the services that that we provide, and it's risk has to be equitable. uh, Otherwise, it's not sustainable. And in order for that to be an equitable experience, right, we we have to understand the normalized trends, kind of as they, they sit. So that we can actually go in and say, "Look, you know, here, here's what these trends are." Now let's go develop some some performance guarantees or some performance requirements around those trends. So what I see happening more today is more of saying, "Look, let's let's start measuring," and more of a year two, year three uh, opportunity to actually start putting some some performance mechanisms uh, in in place on top of that. That really. You know date that that really normalized data set at that point
1: so let's. Let's give an example there. So maybe uh, a really good example, you know, when you're talking about social determinants of health and things like that is you're saying, okay, someone with an SUD is let's say six times more likely to visit the emergency room, you know, in a given year, or they're going to visit the emergency room six to 10 times more than someone without an SUD. So if that's the actual data that we have and that's the number, and then we prove that we've, you know, taken care of or mitigated the effects of the SUD, then we're actually saving the insurance provider, you know, six to 10 emergency room visits ranging from anywhere from $5,000 to $20,000 a visit. So that cost savings is worth it to them. Is, is that correct? Am I saying that right?
0: Yeah, that's, that's right. Okay. I think that's good characterization.
1: Yep. Okay. And so then a question kind of comes in here around, You know, a lot of treatment centers are just providing substance abuse and addiction treatment. You're talking a lot about social determinants of health, and there becomes these tricky questions where, well, let's say we are not a dual diagnosis facility, so we're just dealing with addiction treatment, but someone has a major manic episode, which actually causes them to relapse, you know, then how is that being cared for in a value-based care model, you know, if the manic episode is a big part of the SUD?
0: yeah' it's a great question, so I think that th- there's a couple of things to consider here. N- number one is it is acute care and it is episodic, so meaning the the patient goes to that provider, they leave, and typically uh, in most situations they're not crossing the threshold of that provider again. so we 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 have to be aware. That there's only a, a modicum of influence that acute care provider can have six or seven months downstream. Okay, and and I'm I, I always very vocal about reminding everyone of that. So, secondarily, is here, here's I think how that would be looked at. Nick, did that acute care provider was that diagnosis intact at that point in time? Did they know there was a bipolar diagnosis, let's say that? What care coordination did they do to make sure that individual uh, got the, the the right specialty provider, you know, psychiatrist, uh, the right therapist to help them manage through that? Did they do that? If they didn't do that and there was a manic episode downstream, I think that, that's probably something to take a look at. Um, but look, n- no one should be leaving addiction treatment without a a good care coordination strategy that's already in effect of making sure that all of the multifaceted healthcare needs of that patient are being met on the medical side and on the behavioral side. So I think what, what you could look at like that is what did that acute care provider do to make sure that person was managing Or had, had access to, to the right providers to manage that. What's difficult and something that, that is, again, with this space, it's tough is there's a lot of travel for treatment. People are, are seeking a lot of care outside their, their zip code, so to speak. And so that care coordination can become a, you know, a statewide or, or or a national effort. And it, it's, uh, you know, it can get involved, but it's, it's necessary. Uh, in our own data, you know, we're seeing north of, of 75, 76% uh, uh, of the folks that we work with have a co-occurring, uh, mental or behavioral health diagnosis. And it, left unmanaged, those, those are huge factors in poor outcomes for SUD. And you, you can't manage SUD effectively without driving the coordination for those, those comorbid, uh, diagnosis.
1: So on that note, what I really like about the value-based care model and why I advocate it for it in different regards is it does provide, I think, stronger accountability and ultimately better patient outcomes. Because right now, treatment programs are not really incentivized to look at long-term outcomes, right? There's not a lot of outcome tracking in most centers. And, you know, for them, if the patient relapses, well, they actually make more money because the patient's coming back in. Whereas within a value-based care model, I'm really incentivized to make sure that I am addressing any kind of co-occurring or dual diagnosis issues because I, I don't want to have to cover the cost of that patient coming back. I want to make sure that their discharge plan is really, really good because again, I, all those support services are really going to be necessary for their sustained recovery. You know, and then also what I've noticed in from like a data tracking standpoint, is once the clinical outcomes start to be tracked, a lot of programs find out they're not as strong in the clinical areas they thought they were, right? When you take away the anecdotal success stories, and you actually look at the data, a lot of programs are very, very shocked at how low their success outcomes are. And that creates a really big impetus to start improving the clinical outcomes, improve the tracking, provide better clinical supports for therapists and counselors on staff. Um, I know MAP does a lot of that outcomes tracking as well. You know, Have you seen kind of similar trends when you go and start working with providers where you start presenting the data coming back that you guys are tracking from an outcome standpoint and that having a benefit in terms of, you know, improved outcomes down the line?
0: Yeah. Absolutely. And, and frankly, that's the most exciting part of the job, uh, because it's it's kind of core to the mission of outcomes improvement. Uh, look, like a lot of people in this space are all here for personal reasons, you know, mine isn't for my own personal recovery story, but it is for a lot of people I love. And, and, so the outcomes improvement is, is really at the, the essence of hopefully what, why all of us are, are in the space in, in, in the first place. I have set in front of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of providers. I've never sat in front of a provider who didn't care about what the outcomes on the clinical side were saying. So that's very good. The, so to, to, to get to the, the, the point of I think what your question is, is this, and let me just use an example. The velocity at which an individual returns to work or school after they leave treatment is a major indicator. So I'll call it a proxy. It's a huge proxy for wellness or 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 not, okay? And we, we can extrapolate a lot from that, and we can kind of, there's, there's a lot that, that is implied there. People who are well are back at school, they're back at work, they're integrating back in their community, they've got purpose, they've got structure. You know, people who aren't don't. And and I think it's a kind of a self informing process. The more you work, you know, the, the the better you do, and the less you work or go to school, kind of the worse you may feel about yourself, and you know, shame and a lot of time and all these things. I think are huge factors. So here's an example, I can give dozens of these but I'll use one to kind of represent the others. We were able to, to track those kinds of things. How fast did, did your discharge patients return to these structures, i.e. worker school? And and with, with that metric alone, just to be clear, with that metric alone, you could almost, not totally, but you can almost predict recidivism. Okay, Re- Recidivism meaning return to a higher level of care. So with that said, and if we know that that's the proxy, all right, what does that mean from a programming side? Does that mean, you know, should we do, be doing a lot more on integrating back into those communities, which is way important for a 19, 20, 21 year old, right, who we're depriving of what many people perceive as a rite of passage, which is parting their way through college, right? So how, how do we go to college? How do we integrate back into a social community that doesn't have substances at the root of the, of the camaraderie? It, it, and we're herd animals a 19 year old is not going to isolate, and if they do it isn't good okay same thing with a fifty five year old male so we're, or female doesn't matter but a fifty five year old person in a career you know you're integrating them back into a work environment. what does that look like and and the programming needs to be a lot deeper on those kinds of things okay it needs to be a lot deeper um and and to make that an easier transition so th- that that's one example um same thing on a jobs interviewing side. Look, uh, it's it's a lot of young people, obviously leaving addiction treatment. Okay, and how these are all this, this is our workforce. This is the this is our tax base. How do we get these folks back into positions of contributing to society uh, m- more quickly and in a sustainable way? Where is the jobs training? Where is the where is the legal assistance and and in addiction treatment? uh wherein you know 30 40% of people are navigating current legal issues which are very stressful and so these kinds of things there's a lot of opportunity that you know is kind of i would say slightly outside the the, the the clinical purview but it's inside the the purview of the programming and these are major factors and then what's critical is you have these measures that you can look and see how you're bending the 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 curve on those and continuing to calibrate the inpatient experience and and have the, the KPIs, the key performance indicators to understand is your programming working or is it not? And, you know, to me, that's that feedback loop where the outcomes become actionable. It's not static. It's not a report sitting in a drawer somewhere, but it's improving outcomes and it's, Yeah, it's everything. I think it's
1: everything. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, something I I often share with people when I'm talking about, you know, SUDs and employment and all these other support services around life structure, meaning, and purpose is, you know, they've done some really good studies with unemployment, right? The group of the people that have the highest propensity for addiction are the unemployed. And so often you've heard this idea that it's like, well, you know, they're unemployed because they have an addiction issue. Well, that's not correct, right? So the studies have made it very clear that first, you get unemployed, and then addiction becomes an issue, not the other way around. And when people gain employment, oftentimes the SUD will start to fade away. Um, so, you know, I, I'm on the board for a nonprofit up in Chicago, and we do a lot of employment services, life skills training, all this kind of stuff, and we have really good outcomes. And so, a lot of programs will come and tour, and they'll say, Oh, this is amazing. We love what you guys are doing up here, but we can't do that. Because we can't get reimbursed for it, right? We can't provide those services because we have no way to get paid. So the advantage of value-based care for a provider is that you can put any kind of service you want in there, whether it's life skills, job support, budgeting, legal services, art therapy, equine therapy, whatever is going to work and improve your outcomes. You can do. The insurance company is giving you a, a bunch of money and saying, do whatever works. We trust you as the providers. We trust you as the experts. Just do it and make it work, and we don't care how you get it done. And that's different from the fee for service where it's saying, hey, you provide group therapy, you provide individual therapy, and we'll pay you for that. So I think that is why I want to see things move towards value based care. It sounds like a lot of that's what you guys are trying to do in the same way. Um, so, you know, all, all this stuff is really, really, I think up and coming but it's not there yet can you talk a little bit more about the roadblocks you know what is preventing it from being adopted is it just that we're too early stage we don't have the data or what else can we do here
0: so i think there's a there's a couple of layers of roadblocks number one currently healthcare plans have claims data claims data you know understanding utilization right what services and what's the cost of the the SUD member. So that's a really myopic way to look at outcomes. It's one way, okay? And it's just kind of one facet of outcomes because no one understands the why, the causality behind that, that utilization. And not all utilization is bad. Like ED utilization typically is not looked upon uh, you know, as positive, but preventative utilization—kind of what we were talking about earlier—the preventative care around managing the bipolar, so that bipolar doesn't result in ED presentations or acute psychiatric stays—is considered good. So, you got to look at utilization on a spectrum. Um, the so, there's a, a, I think, an overarching myopic approach. Secondarily, there's just a real absence of data in the addiction treatment space. Uh, you know, acute care provider means acute care. It doesn't, it means that they're they're not collecting a bunch of data downstream. And, and then here's multiple issues with that. Number one, a lot of the data strategies are only capturing data from a tiny percentage of the population that's been discharged, which is kind of an opt-in population, right? And so, it's... It really loses its scientific integrity. Uh, you can't talk about a population really if you're only working with, you know, a single digit percentage of that population that's not a random sample. If it's a, you know, th- we can tell you a whole lot about people who are willing to answer the phone or answer a survey. That's, that's, it's data. Okay, but it, you're not going to go inform value-based care contracts with that kind of information. Next is, <clears throat> the the there's a complete lack of standardization around what these metrics are I would say one of the biggest issues I see routinely is there's a, a an extreme chasm between the outcomes the providers and and on the provider side and and just the addiction treatment side that we think are the outcomes that are relevant to how a healthcare plans plan these outcomes and and it's it's a completely different perspective um, neither is wrong, neither is right, it just is. And so I spent a lot of time trying to bridge the gap of getting overlap on outcomes. You've got a lot of outcome strategies out there. I think that's fantastic. But one downside to, to a lot of outcome strategies is it creates, I think, a lot of confusion in, in out there around what outcomes look like. And I've seen more than one provider walk to a payer with some outcomes that, that just aren't the kind of outcomes that someone's looking for. Uh, that the healthcare plan is looking for. Next, and here's a big issue that we have too when it when it comes to infor- informing value based care, self reported outcomes are typically problematic. As you can imagine, it, it um, or and the methodology of those can be problematic. It's I'm not saying that data isn't useful. I think it's very useful for a lot of things. I'm saying you're not going to typically get paid on that. Um, so look, I think that 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 uh, making sure that the me- the methodology is sound, making sure it's capturing the lion's share of the population, making sure that it is valuable to the payer, i.e. the insurance company. Uh, those are all kind of critical things that I think to kind of getting that that value based strategy rolling. I could go on and on, Nick. I'll uh, I'll kind of defer back to you to see what rabbit you want to chase there.
1: Sure. So, w- can you give some really specific examples? What are some outcomes that are being tracked by the providers, and what are some outcomes that are being tracked by the payers, and how are those not matching up?
0: Sure. So, okay, a couple things. The perspectives on on utilization. I mean, so let, let me qualify everything I'm about to say a little bit better. Healthcare plans. Health care plans are in the simple job of providing health insurance and you know, subsidizing said health insurance and then charging a premium uh, you know, associated with going at risk for those services. So I, I have never sat with an individual at a health care plan who did not care about the wellness of the member. That's, that's a, you know, uh, they 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 do what they do their their job is to go and and act in the best interest of their health care plan which which in most instances and is, is typically revolves around the wellness of the member okay so you know it's not like these are a bunch of diabolical people sitting around trying to figure out how to deny benefits That's not that's not been my experience at all um, but what a health care plan predominantly is able to understand let's say it that way what what they can com- what they compute real well is utilization cost associated with utilization. You have to be able to quantify the downstream cost containment associated with providing your service. It, it, it's an absolute must, and and because that is the language the plan speaks. Now, there's a lot of things that can influence that, and maybe correlated to that. For instance, people with low stress, um, you know, tend to not have uh, their diabetes flare up? Okay, I'm just pulling that one off the top of my head. So your stress metrics are super important. Okay, and it's under and, and that's a pro, that can be a proxy for a lot of things. But you have to be able to to articulate with some some really good accuracy what let's say this that the utilization of the ER and ED is for people who have walked out of your facility, let's say in the last six months. It, it, it's critical. It's critical. That is the language they, they speak. And I, it, just speaking from my own experience, I made a mistake for a long time of going to healthcare plans, talking about real qualitative esque kind of measures. You know, and and you can quantify qualitative measures, but but still, things that that you know, stress levels, happiness levels, twelve uh, step sponsorship levels, meeting attendance. Those are all great things, but they don't fit into an actuary table. And and so. That that's a metric. Uh, n- another metric, Nick, that, that's critical and is is virtually at the core of, of almost every healthcare plan strategy. Adherence to primary care. So, in, in English, getting making sure that people who leave your facility are going home and have a primary care physician that is their medical home. That is that is a, a and, and if a if a provider can demonstrate that they have. They should be asking at the outset. I think a lot are, okay, but what happens to that information? Nick, do you have a primary care provider? Yes, I do. Okay, let's talk about the frequency and what you're seeing him or her. Okay, here's what it looks like. All right, let's, let's, let's get on a phone together with the primary care provider and let's set out what the next year of visits is gonna look like. Let's talk about when you're gonna go there, all right? Or Nick is saying, I don't have a primary care provider. Great, let's get you one. And having, you know, the ability to pull up two or three where that individual lives, even if they're going to be in sober living for six months, it doesn't matter. Get get them one there. All right? But but driving that coordination there and then checking that box and being able to demonstrate that, that you have, you know, I'll just use an example, 100 Members from uh, the the Utah healthcare plan locked in. Fifty eight of them didn't have a, a primary care provider. Now fifty of those fifty eight do. And our intervention, our 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 encounter with that that patient, was what made that happen. Those are that's outcomes, okay? Because now they can derive a whole lot of of predictive modeling around cost savings that that individual is adhering to primary care. And so, um, it, it, again, I'm happy to go on and on with these, or, or hopefully that illustrates a little bit.
1: I think that really helps people give a perspective on it. Can you give a couple more examples? So you've got emergency room or emergency department visits. You've got connection to a primary care provider and regular visits. You know, can you give two or three other like, standard um, tracking metrics that healthcare plans are looking at?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So we, we know this population, whether they're, they're 19 or, or 69, there's a, high, a higher instance of comorbid conditions than there is with just the, the holdout group, which is the population, let's say it that way. Um, so we, we've got to peel back the layers of the diagnostics, um, and we, we have to also coordinate with specialty care. Right. If someone's got raging diabetes, you know, for the the, the right thing to do is to get into an endocrinologist or to to get the right care online. Right. Some of this can be happening in the acute care space. So, suffice it to say, uh, we we've got to ensure that the individuals are getting the specialty care they need associated with that with whatever other conditions are experiencing if a facility doesn't have the capability to kind of coordinate on that level then at a minimum get them into primary care where that primary care doc is going to be able to drive that 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 kind of extra coordination for the specialty care but specialty care next med adherence okay We, we have to to understand med adherence especially on the behavioral and and psych side where lack of med adherence meaning not taking medication as as prescribed is is in many instances like bipolar and other kinds of more more serious organic you know kind of uh, mental health issues is the number one factor in recidivism we there's a lot of med tracking that's going on out there you know i don't think there's anything yet that's that's hitting it Totally out of the park, but I think they'll get there. But you know, we re- the med management has to be super on point. It has to be very documented, and any kind of post acute med management, which you know, again, you know, our peers are able to to get some insight into. But whether you're using a peer or not, someone's got to be able to do a little bit of med management. And I don't even mean on a you know clinical med management where a psych doctor is sitting there doing that. Although that may be necessary. But getting insight into are you taking the medications as prescribed? Absolutely critical and one that, you know, the the healthcare plans, the uptake is high. They understand meds and they understand med utilization. And and in most instances, especially with chronic conditions, psych Behavioral, those kinds of things, that, that's, that's not, that's okay, that's good utilization, right? If someone's got bipolar, we want them taking their meds. If someone has severe anxiety, an anxiety disorder, we want you taking your meds. We want you fulfilling that, that script and, and taking it through the protocol. Um, other, other things, and this is where it kind of gets interesting and where it starts to get a little bit more esoteric, if you will, is, is discharge plan compliance. All right and and compliance for a twelve step guy may look different than compliance for an MAT guy, uh, but it's all still compliance. And and being able to to demonstrate and it's just I, I get it. Everyone has a discharge plan, okay? It, it it the vast majority of facilities, but look, a lot of discharge plans end up in a drawer. And a discharge plan should be a, a living, breathing document that is used to continue to inform the recovery process. And it, it should be clinically devised, and it should be able to be calibrated as necessary because people, you know, there's variables in recovery, and things happen, and phenomenon change, and that's something that, that, that needs to be managed, and being able to demonstrate that, that, that that's happening is another important metric. Again, the it, and that's an ask I get a lot, is uh, just around our side, is what what do you do around discharge plan compliance? I'm not talking about what the discharge plan is, but, but having the individual adhere to it. Um, so those are those are a few additional ones that, that come to mind. Recidivism, obviously, I think that, look, this is a relapsing, re- remitting condition. We know that people are going to return to higher levels of care. Fine, okay, fine. But wh- what can we do to do that in a more predictable way? What can we do to intervene earlier? Right, it, I think whether it's cancer, heart disease, or substance use disorder, the number one factor uh, in a positive outcome is early intervention. This is the only disease that I hear sometimes. It's like, well, we got to let Timmy hit rock bottom, and then he'll be ready. I mean, imagine you know we don't say that to pancreatic cancer patients. We don't say that to heart patients. And either this is healthcare or it's not. If it's healthcare, then you know, early intervention. To, to mitigate high acuity has to be the strategy. Whether it's it's, it's pre-acute before the first episode or we're nine episodes, acute care episodes into it, we have to continually manage this thing to, to, to keep the, the acuity levels low. So I'll step off that soapbox for a minute.
1: Let me provide a little bit of information just to make sure that everyone's on the same page. I'm sure they are, but just in case everyone's kind of new to this discussion, when you're looking at modeling from like a healthcare plan standpoint, you know you're talking about seeing your primary care physician or taking your meds on a regular schedule, following a discharge plan. You know the healthcare plans have all the data on the back end, and they can show very easily that you know someone that's not following their meds and taking them on the prescribed basis have $100,000 extra per year that they're paying out because they have these acute episodes that need to be taken care of, emergency room visits, relapses, all this kind of stuff. So there's a very clear financial incentive for them. They can run those models. And so when you come to them with similar data, they can run the cost analysis and make sense for them. On the same level, you should be able to do that for your own program, right? So you know, I know this data because we see it on the back end for a lot of clients. A lot of providers are having 30% of their patients relapse in a year, right? So you need to run that into your models and say, okay, if we're working with an insurance provider or insurance payer, sorry, and they're going to give us X amount of dollars, we know that 30% of our patients are probably going to back coming back in the next year. Or so does the contract we're Creating with them and negotiating with them does that make sense given that cost model that we've got in place? You know, so knowing your numbers not just helps you go to the insurance provider to negotiate, but also understands you what you need to negotiate to be profitable to provide services. You know, within the current metrics that you have. So I just kind of want to clarify that for some people. And then uh, Jacob, you mentioned that the self-reporting is not always accurate which I think is obvious right but how do you get this data otherwise or, or what how, how do you recommend presenting data if you can't get it from a self reporting standpoint
0: well so, so when I'm, when, two, two things I, I want to go back to, to something that, that we, we just covered and the, the opportunity with the outcomes for the provider and you're right Nick they have the utilization data they understand scripts being fulfilled they understand presentation at, at non-routine medical service uh, locations, those kinds of things, what, what the provider's job is to say, hey, you know, we were responsible for that reduction because we did this, or we were responsible for that person accessing preventative care because we, got, we, we coordinated it for them, right? And, and it's the why that's missing. And right now, you know, the, the why people are getting better is up for grabs. And, and there's an opportunity for primary care to say, we, we did that, or primary care. There's opportunity for addiction treatment, acute care to say, we did that. That's part of our programming. And, and that's what they need to do is, 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 is be credited for the cost containment uh, that, that, that's probably happening as a result of, of what's happening. So um, on to the other part of what you just asked. Do you mind repeating that?
1: Yeah, so I definitely want to come back to that because it's an excellent point. The other question I had was the self-reporting, right? So, you know, you're saying self-reporting's not that accurate. How do we get accurate data?
0: All right. So th- th- this is from my own experience. Ninety-one um, percent of the time that we've ever facilitated a healthcare resource acquisition, so uh, you know, someone who's who's making a decision to to use a healthcare service, be it addiction treatment or anything, ninety-one percent of the time it is mom, dad, or the spouse of the patient who is making that decision. Only 9% of the time it's the SUD patient themselves. This, this disease has a feature where people typically don't coordinate their own care, all right? So you must have an alliance with mom, dad, or the spouse. That's, in, 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 so that's a, a hallmark to what we do. So let's, let's look at self-reported info kind of on two layers. Number one is there's gonna be a lot of patient self-reported info, right? Do you have a job? Uh, how do you feel today? Did you go to the emergency room? Those kinds of things. That kind of self-reported information, especially when it's qualitative in nature or or, or it's it's their own perception, are you feeling stressed? Uh, only you can tell me if you're stressed. Your wife or you know your your friends can tell me their perception of your stress, but your perception's your reality. Totally okay. Self-reported info, super useful and and totally fine. Self-reported info from your your stakeholders, i.e., your mom, your dad, your spouse. All right? Yeah, Nick does have a job. Well, uh, Nick doesn't have a job. But you just told me yesterday you did. So those kinds of things can be concerning when when you're you're helping someone work through their, their recovery. Here here's the issue. When you take so imagine that from five hundred discharged patients all collated together from a provider. And a provider turning around to a health insurance company saying, Hey, here's our outcomes. Okay, how did you get those? Well, you know, our staff called and did follow up and these are the the, the, the responses we got. When I say self-reported, I mean a provider reporting to a, a health care plan. These are the outcomes. And so you know, how do you certify those? And if money's going to change hands associated with those, you know, how do we certify those? And you know, unfortunately, and I hate saying this, but we've got an optics issue in this space. You know, the addiction treatment space has an optics issue. And, you know, we've got... Uh, you know a, a very 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 small minority in this space has grabbed headlines and it, it's been hurtful to the space and we we so I think the there is a strong desire to have a, a standardized and certified uh, perspective on how those outcomes are kind of curated managed and reported and I I have seen many instances, I don't want to exaggerate, I have seen instances where it's been problematic for a provider to show up and say, here's our outcomes, and then when, when scrutinized, especially by sophisticated data people, health plans, they just implode. I mean, you can just pick apart the methodology, and you can't get paid for it. And it's sad because the intent is right, okay, and that data has a lot of use, but not for value-based care purposes with a commercial health care plan.
1: Good to know. Well, it's a learning process, right? You, you take it to them, you find out what they're, you know, like you did, right? You said you were taking the, the wrong data for a long time, but you figure it out, that helps. Okay, so going back to that point that you made about integrating with other providers, I mean, I think this is really the key. I think this is what's missing from behavioral health, right? Is it's not integrated into the larger healthcare network. And like you said, a discharge plan is not, you know, find a sponsor, find your AA groups and avoid your triggers, right? It's who is your primary care physician, you know, do you have a mental health provider, or a therapist that you're working with? You know, what is your med, whatever prescription plan? Are you taking it? And then coordinate with the family as well. But you should have a network of people surrounding that person that is providing support and then that you're aware of, or at least connecting to the discharge plan so that everyone's on the same page you know, and that's what I think is something that's lacking so is that something that you're seeing become better with the providers that you're working with are you helping that through your map peer recovery specialist you know what's the trend there
0: yeah I, I think that's getting better because look if you can start putting forth a quantitative metric and and you know it you know gamify may not be the right word but if you can quantify that metric for, for folks then it, it's a much easier, kind of less opaque process because you can say, hey, are we, here's this, this metric. We're looking at it monthly. Are we, are we moving the metric? You know, are we improving? And it, it gets, I, I see the energy light up in these clinical teams to go back and, and work on the programming and have a reference point for success. You, I, I don't know how one, I certainly can't, can be successful without having a really clear definition of what that is, Okay. So hey, eighteen percent of these people are walking in with with a primary care or, or a medical home. Damn it, let, let's make sure it's fifty percent when they walk out. Okay, last month it was forty two. What are we doing to move that metric? So critical. Um, and, and, and look, we we yes, you know we, we do that too. Um, and you know, maps able to do that as an extension. You know, but I look. I, I'm going to really encourage primary. This are opportunities for for the, the primary addiction treatment provider to do it. There's a lot of things that they can do that that the maps of the world don't have to do, and you you get credit for it. And and let us drive the adherence to it. I mean that, that's that's preferable. Have all of that established, and the day they walk out, you know, continuing care is is driving adherence to an extant and sustainable. Health, you know, customized health care strategy for the individual, right? The, the preference walking out of an acute care environment, especially a long one like addiction treatment, isn't that those kinds of things have to be formulated. Let us drive the adherence to it. You, you formulate it. Um, you meaning the, the addiction treatment provider. Um, I, here's the base thing I would say. Here's where I think we're really at in this space. Start measuring something. And when I mean measuring something, I don't mean what, you know, 2% of the people, 5-8, because I'm privy to all this, 5-8% of the people who answer the phone over the course of the year, that, that isn't, that, that isn't going to get it done at the end of the, the, the day. Work, I don't care how you get it done, you've got to get, you know, north of 50% of your population, preferably 70, 80% of your population, so you get a good cross-section, and you can start to do, now you can do some extrapolation from that, it's really hard to do it from a single digit percentage. Measure something, have some sort of third party certified audit, however you get that done, but you've gotta have the DNA of a, a legitimate, sophisticated organization on those outcomes so that when you sit across the, the, the payer at the table, you, you've got you know a, a strong and compelling story for the value prop and the efficacy of your services. Just measure something.
1: Yes, yes, absolutely. I mean, you know, that's why I keep saying to providers, they're like, well, we don't have a clear definition of this. We'll make one and start. You know, just start measuring. And something else I I really want to kind of dig into here is one of our final questions is, what's constantly missing from the addiction treatment conversation is these, the social determinants of health, right? It's been in healthcare for a couple of decades now, but we don't talk about addiction treatment. Addiction treatment, all you really hear about is the drug and the use, you know, but there are all these social determinants. And so you guys are starting to measure a lot of that. And I'm interested in the data that you've had for over a decade now, you know, what do you see that you measure that has a biggest outcomes for improvement, you know, across the spectrum of health from whether it's an SUD perspective or in general, you know, what's helping people get better?
0: Yep. It's a great question. And this is probably the, the, the best, I'll try to keep it short. Maybe the, the best insight I can share on the whole podcast. Okay. Uh, because it's not a map thing. It's uh, you know, I think everyone can go and, and strive for these. All right. So no particular order. Like I said, it, in a, we are herd animals, and we must have a herd experience. You have to integrate people back into a social uh, environment, social and, and work and school. It's a must. An isolative individual with SUD is a very, very high-risk individual with SUD. Okay? And there's not a one-size-fits-all. Again, an 18-year-old female with... Uh, opioid use disorder and co-occurring bipolar, that means something different than a 60-year-old straight male alcoholic. But the the strategy is the same. Get that person integrated. Next, primary care. We've got everyone is on board. All the literature has established for a very long time people with a, a medical home are healthier, period. And and it's in the healthcare plan strategy, uh, so just from a business standpoint, it's the right thing to do. But from a the a, a health standpoint, it's the right thing to do. Next, the, the 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 med side. All right, we've got to ensure the the medication side. We've covered that. Um, the the program compliance side. We've covered that. All right? We've got to uh, ensure living environment. Absolutely critical. Uh, it kind of overlaps with that social piece, but look, it's where we spend the lion's share of our time. Uh, wh- what living environment is an individual in? And based on that living environment, how is that conducive or not to access to the other resources that we're talking about? So it becomes kind of that rural issue, an access issue, which then goes into some transportation issues. So, yeah, you know, we, we, we need to ensure that those living environments are, are healthy and, and measurable to, to that end. Um, absolutely critical. Um, the, I think I talked about the work piece, you know, without continuing to complicate the, 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 the process, you know, I, I would keep it simple and, and look, look, an outcome strategy to be successful, you, you've got to be able to complete the, the initial phase. Start measuring something. Start measuring a couple of measures, some of the ones that we talked about, especially ones you have control over, you know, who, who has a medical home, uh, being able to document some of these kinds of things, Who? You know, what are the comorbid issues, and, and being able to document that you've arranged the, the appropriate specialty care, you know, that's something you can measure, that's something you can influence, and then that's something that's going to tie back to, to utilization data downstream for that individual. Um, and 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 it it you know, frankly, a lot of those things at that point in time don't even require you to have a robust follow-up process because a lot of that's happening in the acute care space. So you know, hopefully that's helpful to the, to the listeners. Um, and, you know, look, I would say iteration 234 can start to really complicate it, but I don't think it's necessary to do that, to go sit in front of a health care plan today and say, here's what we're measuring, here's why we're valuable to your members and and those who can do what i just said are already in a league of their own
1: right you know and like you are saying you know aside from listening to this podcast you you don't have to go to that healthcare plan and say here's what we're measuring you know let let's work out a deal you can go and ask you know what are you guys measuring and what do we need to be measuring that we can come back to you with right i mean just start that conversation
0: look i think there's here has been my experience there's a lot of people at a healthcare at these healthcare plans who who in my experience have been reasonable And would entertain with, you know, very, very, with a lot of joy, a conversation around providers who are willing to, to measure and, and demonstrate and provide reporting to that plan around these outcomes associated with their members and, and go into a partnership to, to that end. Very well received. It's not happening enough. It's way in the strategy. And, you know, ultimately it, it's, it's going to be a better result for the, the patient that's that's what's really going to happen that should be the whole point provider and and payer working in sync and I get it there's always going to be some tugs there okay and it's, frankly it's probably healthy that there is but but those two working more in tandem is is better for the patients better it's better healthcare right right
1: well Jacob this entire conversation has been fascinating I really appreciate you taking the time to come on the show you know, if someone wants to reach out to you or at least connect with map you know what's the best way to do that
0: yeah, look, I mean, you got to find, uh, on LinkedIn, pretty actively, I've pretty much abandoned all other platforms and kind of go all in, and on LinkedIn, I'm there, uh, I'll share my email address, I have no problem doing that, uh, that is Jacob, J-A-C-O-B, at this, T-H-I-S, is map, M-A-P, dot com, shoot me a note, uh, happy to, to look at any idea or any conversation, conversations to, to improve outcomes.
1: Perfect. Well, I really appreciate it again for all of our listeners. This is the Recovery Executive Podcast. You can listen to it streaming or download it anywhere where podcasts are found. And we will put all the links from today's episodes on the website. So if you go to circlesociallink.com, just go to the Recovery Executive Podcast page right at the top. And this is episode 40, sorry, 43, episode 43. So click on that, and you'll be able to access the links. Thank you all so much and look forward to connecting with everyone next time.